you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5. That'll be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through this book of the Scripture. If you've been with us, perhaps by now you've recognized a sort of a pattern in Luke's writing about the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit and His work in the early church. Uh, he tends to go back and forth between giving us a picture of the inside of the church and then giving us a picture of the outreach of the church. And so uh, Acts 1 begins looking on the inside, Jesus teaching the disciples how all things in scriptures teach about Him, promising the coming of the Holy Spirit. It deals with uh, the church dealing with their own health. They saw the need from the scripture to find a replacement for Judas. And so uh, Acts 1 is very much picture inside the church. And then Acts 2, of course, is a picture of the church reaching out to the world there at Pentecost as the Spirit comes, as the gospel is proclaimed, as many respond in faith. Thousands, the scripture tells us. And then Acts 2 closes with another picture uh, looking in the church. It speaks of how they gathered for the apostles' teaching, for the breaking of bread, for the prayers. It gives us a picture of what a healthy church looks like. And then in Acts 3, there's that, that picture again of the outreach where we have Peter and John, as they're going into the temple, uh, that lame man, lame since the time he was born, over four decades, the scripture tells us, he had been without the ability to walk. And, and we have that picture of them sharing the grace of the gospel with him as he is healed, as he repents, as he believes, and as many, thousands, again, the scripture tells us, do the same. And, and then that chapter 2 ends by looking into the church, telling us how the church operated, how th- there was this... This gracious heart that pervaded the early church. Where when any need was noticed or recognized within the whole body, those who had resources would would give up what they had to make sure that need was met. And the scripture last week we looked at told us of one who was involved in that. And how the the others in the church saw that and saw his, his gracious heart. Barnabas, the one whose name given to him was given because of the the graciousness that he carried himself with. And and we read last week about how Ananias and Sapphira, when they saw the the graciousness of Barnabas, we we see within them an unhealthy heart and desire to bring attention to themselves. It reminds us that when we look into the workings of the church, we don't always see a pretty picture. And that's what we saw last week. And yet we saw how... God in His grace and mercy dealt with that situation. And where we left last week, we left with essentially many people in awe and in fear of God for how He had responded to the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. That pattern that Luke has developed is important to us because we as the church today need to think about both things. We need to look inside the church and determine are are we... Healthy? Are we in a place where God has called us to be like the early church where we are obeying God, we're reading His Word, we're doing what it says? And then are we also a church in the power of the Holy Spirit that is reaching out to our community, to our nation, to our world empowered by the Spirit? See, sometimes we can get so focused on looking in that we don't look out. And sometimes we can get so focused on looking out that we don't stop to consider are we looking out from a very healthy place? Well, I believe today's scripture deals with both of those issues and calls us to to look at the health of our church, to look at the health of our own Christian walks, each of us, and then to look to see are are we proclaiming, are we reaching out as we should be? Because 
As we come into this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we're reminded that, that our primary responsibility as believers is to proclaim the good news of the gospel to a lost world. We are reminded every time we turn on the news, we open the paper of how desperately our world needs to hear the gospel of Jesus. And so I pray today as we go through this passage together that you will not only see that need, but that God might show each of us how he has called and equipped us to respond to that need. Uh, We're going to pick up in the text today in Acts 5 after that situation with Ananias and Sapphira at that point in the early church where the text tells us great fear came upon them and it came upon all who had heard as as I'm sure that fear would come today if if our deception, our lies were revealed before God and His church and as a result our lives were taken as they were with Ananias and Sapphira. That's where we'll pick up. So add a reverence for the Word of God if you're able, if you would stand as I read this for us. Acknowledging that this is the the holy, true, infallible Word of God for us today, friends. And this is what it says. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to their prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers, captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Father God, we pray that that we would proclaim today Jesus as the Christ. And Lord, that you might help us to understand that. Lord, I pray for any here who's yet to respond to the gospel that they would. And Lord, that this gospel be one that we would take to the nations. We pray for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I mentioned last week one of my favorite things about celebrating Christmas and the birth of Christ as I love all the decorations and the lights. Another, another thing I love this time of year is all the, the, the Christmas specials that come on. We've all got those different ones that we enjoy watching, that we make sure to watch. I, I think still one of my favorites is, is a classic. It's a, a Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, Charlie Brown Christmas has been on for almost 50 years now. And you all know that that pinnacle scene in the Charlie Brown Christmas is when Linus comes out and he, he reads about the story of the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. I, I love that moment in a Charlie Brown Christmas. And we tend to think about that and it being 50 years ago and think, well, well I wish specials like, like today's specials would have something like that in them. But what we forget is that the, the Gospel has been contested for a long time, even 50 years ago. When Charles Schultz put together that special, in fact, the TV executives uh, tried to take that part out of the special. They were going to let it air, but said, no, you can't air it with this because that's just too religious. This whole concept of, of Christmas, trying to make it a non-religious holiday, a, a secular holiday, that, that's been going on for a long time. That's, that's nothing new. We tend to think of it as it is. We tend to get very upset that people want to take Christ out of Christmas, that there's this offense to say Merry Christmas, so you have to say Happy Holidays or something else. But, but this whole secularization has been taking place for a long time. And the question has been before the church for many years and is still before the church today. How are we then to respond to that? And sadly, sometimes we don't respond so well. Because sometimes we get angry, we get frustrated, and we demand our rights in and, and, and the way that we're trying to help people to see that Christmas is about Christ, sometimes the the ways we go about that aren't the best. And so today I wanted to stop and consider how can we as believers help the world around us truly understand what Christmas is about? Or more importantly, 
what is the call that God has put on my life and on yours at Christmas time? How are we as Christians to share with the world around us about Christ at Christmas? I think we get some important truths about that question in this text today. This text we come to on the heels of that event we've talked of in the church where, where we've seen great discipline, where we've seen the holiness of God, where we've seen how God truly treats sin and how sin is deserving of death. And on the, the heels of that, though, we still see the church flourishing and the church growing because I think what we see is a church focused on what the church is called to focus on. And so as we consider this pattern that Luke has developed, look inside the church and the health of the church, and then look at reaching outside of the church, I want us to consider those things today. Because for us to reach out and reach the nations, we need to do that from a healthy place, from a firm foundation. And I think we see that firm foundation displayed in our text today. I'm beginning with the first point I've put there in your notes, the, the calling on our lives today as Christians, the calling at Christmas time. See, friends, we're called to proclaim Christ rather than protest the culture. Sometimes that's a slippery slope and we find ourselves more on the protesting end than on the proclamation end. And sadly, I think the church today, so often we're, we're known more for the things that we're against than we are known for the things that we're for. We're known more for the things that we protest than for the things that we proclaim. And yet that was not the case with the early believers in the church gathered there in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. As you've seen up to this point, as you see in the text today, they were known for a singular message. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is Lord and King, and you are to repent and trust in Him. That was the message they proclaimed. And we pick up here in verse 12 with them proclaiming that message. The text tells us that as they were doing that, that many signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles. And then a description is given. And my goodness, there's some pretty miraculous things taking place here. In fact, the text tells us that, that so many miraculous things were happening around the apostles that people would try to lay out their sick just so that the shadow of Peter, one of the apostles, might fall on them that they might be healed. It's quite a magnificent display of the Spirit of God. And it's exactly what the disciples had prayed for. And remember what happened to Peter and John. They were arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They were told not to proclaim in Jesus' name. Their, their lives were threatened. They were then returned to the other believers. And do you remember what they prayed for? They didn't pray for protection. They didn't pray for the threats to go away. This is part of what they prayed for in Acts chapter 4. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they prayed, God, help us just to be bold about preaching the gospel. And then they said this, While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed in Acts 4 that signs and wonders would take place, and that's exactly what happens in Acts chapter 5 in this ministry. But as we read... Not everybody was excited about this, or at least associating with this. In verse 13, it says, None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, 
commentators have varying opinions on who the rest are because in the Greek language, that, that phrase, the rest, could refer to a number of folks. Some say, well, the rest, that's just, that's just the culture, that's just the people, and they didn't want to associate with the apostles, but that's a little problematic because when you continue the verse, it says, the people, which is a clear indication of the culture, they held them in high esteem. Others, and where I kind of land on this, they say that, that the rest... It's actually a reference to others in the church. And so as we talked about last week, what you've got at this point in the church in Jerusalem is you have thousands of Christians, all very young in their faith, all very new in their faith. And here it tells us that some of them are afraid to associate with the apostles. Why would that be the case? Well, think about this in your own shoes. You're, you're new in the church, you're new to the faith. You gather together and you see people coming along, giving gifts, giving offerings, and then this couple comes in, a couple of great esteem, a couple of great resource, the, the husband at least, he comes in, he makes this offering, perhaps you can't hear exactly what's being said or going on, but you know enough to know he, he just did something wrong, <laughs> and God just took his life. And as you're sitting there talking to other people about that, sorting that out, trying to figure that out, not long after that, in comes his wife, and you're wondering, how are they going to explain this to her? How are they going to explain to her what's happened here? She probably doesn't know, doesn't understand. And then she lies to the Lord in the same way, and God takes her life. I imagine that would give you and I a moment to consider our own sin, <laughs> consider our own truthfulness, our own integrity. This last uh, week, perhaps, you've seen there in the news all the, all the news about, they don't know who they think is probably the North Koreans, but this uncovering of all these emails and documents of Sony. And, and if you followed all that, you know that, that basically what's happened is that someone has gained the ability to see what thousands of people have emailed, have written, have documented in very private exchanges between two people. And now that's all laid bare for the public to see. And I was reading one pastor who was commenting on this this week, and he said, you know, as Christians, we need to stop and consider how long will it be before all the information of people in your church is laid bare for you to read? How long will it be before somebody hacks the pastor's email and puts that out there? And what will you do, what will I do when that happens? In your curiosity, will you be drawn into reading those things and wanting to know, I wonder what he wrote, I wonder what he said, I wonder what she said? How many of us in this room would sign up right now to allow every text message, every email, every conversation to be made public that we've ever had? I don't see a lot of hands. <laughs> That's an altar call, I'd be standing here by myself. Actually, I'd walk that way. I wouldn't want to be near here either. Why? Because the, the thought of all of our sin being laid bare before others is a pretty scary thought. And so you have a church of people who are thinking that. They're thinking, if Ananias and Sapphira have lost their lives for their sin, gosh, what's going to happen to me? And so the Scripture tells us then that, that some of them... They're not going to associate with the apostles. They're staying away from them. Perhaps out of fear that their sin may be exposed. Perhaps other, in the youthfulness of their faith, they're just scared for their own lives. They realize threats have been breathed against these guys. And yet, what do the apostles do? The scripture says they continue to boldly 
proclaim the gospel. And while there are some in the church who wouldn't join them, notice what Luke tells us. But the people held them in high esteem. That means the culture around them, the people around them, they looked at what was going on. And they weren't on the inside, they were on the outside. But when they looked at the church and they looked at the apostles, the scripture says they held them in high esteem. The Greek word there means they actually praised them. Now just think about that for a second. You have believers who are thinking so seriously about sin that they're considering whether or not they can even gather with other believers. You have a church that's dealing so seriously with sin and the righteousness and holiness of God that people are really going, wait, do do I want to be a part of that? And you have a culture looking in that perhaps doesn't believe, many of them don't believe, but on the outside looking in, they see enough to go, those people are serious about what they believe, and they held them in high regard. That, that's how the church was viewed in the book of Acts. Is that how the church is viewed today? See, sadly, so many times the church today, we're scared to death to talk to each other about sin. Well, you, you can't confront that person because if you do, they'll leave. <laughs> well, if you talk to them, you know who their cousin is and their aunt and uncle and then this relative's on this committee and if you say something to them, well, we'll just let's just let it be. Or sometimes, honestly, and I think probably more so, we, we don't talk and we don't confront each other on sin because not, we're not dealing with the sin in our own life. And, and so we feel this, this burden, this guilt of, well, who am I? to say something to them about what they're doing when, when I've got this going on. And we become churches that just don't deal very seriously with sin, very different than the church in Acts. And then as a result, how does the culture view the church today? I don't know that they hold us in a high esteem or a high regard. I don't know what they say to you, but I know what they say to me. Well, that church over there, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. And that church over there, they do this. And well, that guy over here, he's a deacon in that church. But you know what he's doing the rest of the week, you know. And they look at us as a people who don't take Scripture or sin very seriously. And as a result, we don't see in our culture today so often what we see here in the text. A a church that was dealing seriously with sin, seriously with God's Word. The the, the, The culture held them in high regard. And as a result... The fruit of this, the scripture tells us, was more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord. Now, that's a big more than ever. I mean, you consider what happened at Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. You consider what happens when Peter and John are arrested, 5,000 men are saved. So that's 8,000 right there. The church, probably at this point, is numbering 10, 20, who knows how many thousands, because more than those events, God is adding to the church people who are being saved. I just want to ask you, do you long to see that today? I mean, do you leave church some days wondering why is there such a difference? Why is it that we read the church in Acts and thousands are being added daily and we seem to struggle greatly just to add one or two? And a lot of times for every one or two we add, we lose three or four. Do you look at this and just a part of you go, Lord, man, I'd love to see that. Do you look at this and wonder, Lord, why don't we see this? I do. 
And when I do, I think, why, why the difference? Why aren't we seeing these things today? And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I, th- I think it's because church and myself, all of us, this is us together, we have become so distracted. And, and we've lost our focus. And so then when it comes to things like Christmas, we, we go out into a culture that's entirely secular, and they don't worship Jesus, and they don't know Jesus, and we walk into a department store, and they're playing secular holiday music, and, and, and none of the banners say anything about Christmas. It's all about holidays. And we start to get upset about that. And then we get to the register, and we're just fuming, and we make it a point to tell the person when they say happy holidays, well, no, Merry Christmas to you. Because I'm a Christian, I celebrate Christmas. But here's what we're missing. They don't know who Jesus is. What we demand that we say, Jesus is the reason for the season. That, that's fine. That's a good statement. If that is on your car or your yard, I'm not knocking that. But the world doesn't know who Jesus is. And so here we are fuming and stomping, demanding, well, you better keep Christ in Christmas. And they don't know who Christ is. And that's the message we're called to proclaim. That's what the apostles were proclaiming. We're here under threat of their lives and they are boldly saying, Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. And notice, they don't pull any punches when they're confronted, when when the religious leaders say, y'all better stop talking about Him because people are going to start thinking, we killed Him. What does Peter say? Well, you did kill Him. (laughs) But guess what? God raised Him from the dead. So we need to move from the point where it seems like we're willing to send anybody we know pictures of Jesus in a manger, but we've got to shift that conversation and say that baby grew to be a man. He went to the cross and he died for your sins. And that is the message we are called to proclaim. But me, you, all of us, I think we get so distracted. And honestly, it is easier to protest things. (laughs) It's easier to get mad and riled up. It's easier to stomp our feet than it is to extend our hand and share our heart. It is so much easier to look at people's sin and say, well, look at what they're doing. I can't believe that than it is to say, but for the grace of God. It's easier to look down than it is to share the gospel. But what we see here very firmly in the early church is a church that just proclaimed Christ. And every time they were threatened, they just kept proclaiming Christ. And every time they were mocked, they kept proclaiming Christ. You don't see them protesting. So you got this picture in Acts 2. Here's the disciples, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're speaking in languages they don't understand, but other people do. And you, it's just chaos. There's, just, there's people from everywhere in Jerusalem, from the ends of the earth, and they're just speaking the gospel, and it's in languages they don't know, and people are walking by, and they look at them, and do you remember what they said? These guys, they're drunk. <laughs> they, they, they've been hitting something. They're, just, they're, they're out of their heads. And rather than fuming or getting mad or getting upset or protesting, what do the disciples say? We're not drunk. We're filled with the Spirit. And let me tell you about the Spirit of God. And they just start preaching the gospel over and over. And thousands come to faith. Peter and John are arrested. They get out of jail. They go back to the disciples. What do they do? They don't start making up picket signs. They don't start protesting. They don't start saying, well, how dare they? And we're going to do this and we're going to fight it this way. What are they? Lord, would you give us boldness to proclaim the gospel? They don't pray for safety. 
Now pray for the threats to go away. That is, pray for proclamation. And church, we need to as well, because that is the greatest gift that we can give anyone this Christmas season. You, you think about this. This is very convicting as I've thought about it myself. You think about how much time and effort we go to to give people gifts. I mean, some of us will stand in a line for a long time. Others of us will scour the internet trying to find the right deal. Others of us will we'll go to, the, to great limits of our time, of our energy, of our finances to, to get the right gift for someone. Now, let's be honest. What's going to become of those gifts after December 25th? I'll go ahead and let you know. The churchyard sale is next summer. <laughs> Drop off stuff anytime. Because that's where most of it goes. If it survives until the yard sale. Some of it goes to the dumpster before that. Some of it's donated before that. There might be a few things that stick around till next year's yard sale or the one after that. But there is a gift that we can give that will not diminish, that will not lose value and is of far greater worth than anything we can stand in line for or we can scour the internet for or we can pay for or we can go in debt for. And it's the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ where we graciously and lovingly go to a world who doesn't know him. They may know his name. They may sing some of the songs we sang about him this morning, but they don't know him. And we have the opportunity to extend that gift to them, the gift that didn't come from us, but that God has given to us and we get to give to others. This is the greatest re-gifting known to man. God gives us the gospel and he says, you go give it to as many as you will. And that's the call in our lives. But as we do that, not everyone will be pleased. Point two. Another call we see at Christmas is to endure persecution rather than expect prosperity. See, some of us were raised to believe or perhaps we've just picked up in the church along the way this notion that if we come to faith, it's all good, it all works out and we'll prosper. And that's not true. You'll see it everywhere. It's hard to go through a Christian bookstore without seeing it. It's hard to turn on a Christian television station without seeing it. Because it, it pervades things today. And it's this teaching of health and wealth and prosperity. If you have enough faith, then God will give you this. If you don't have enough faith, then you'll suffer. That, that's essentially what it is in a nutshell. And it's a lie in a nutshell. Because it's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture is filled filled with suffering among God's people. And so I don't know how someone gets in the pulpit and says, oh, you're suffering today. Well, if you have enough faith today, you won't suffer anymore because that's not in this book. And we see it here with the disciples. They are faithfully doing what God's called them to do. They're faithfully obedient to God. And what happens? They go preach the gospel. They get arrested. They're brought before the council. Council says, we told you to stop talking about Jesus. You're talking about Jesus. Puts them in jail. What happens? Angel comes and gets them out of jail. I would love to have a few more verses about that. I, I can only imagine what God does there. In fact, the scripture tells us that the next day, they go to get them out of prison, and the guards don't even know they're gone. The appearance is nothing's happened, and they go in and they're just gone. And God does something miraculous there. He pulls them out of prison, and then what's He tell them to do? Okay, now that you're out of jail, I want you to go do the very thing that you were put in jail for. Go preach the gospel more. 
And you can imagine the disciples are probably thinking, well, I know where this is going to end, but they go do it. They're obedient. And what happens? Well, the council brings them before the council again, arrests them again. Listen, we've told you, stop preaching this name. Then they make that statement. Listen, people are going to start thinking that, God, that the blood of Christ is on our hands if y'all keep preaching. And I love Peter here. What does he say? Well, they're going to think that because it is. It's not just your hands. It's all of our hands. But yet God raised him from the dead. And so that's the moment when the health and wealth folks, the prosperity folks might come along and say, well, see, there you go. God takes them out of prison. God rescues them with the angel and takes them out of the valley and puts them on the mountaintop and it's prospering. It's all good. It's all good at this point. But what happens? You keep reading the text. Religious leaders go from being jealous to wanting to kill them. Now, they don't kill them because of an intervention here that we'll get to, but, but what do they do? The Scripture says later on they beat them. And we hear beat them and we think, well, they slapped them around a little bit. But no, it was something far worse than that. According to the law given to these leaders this time, they were permitted to, to give them lashes with a whip made out of a, a cow's hide, three strips of it, and they would beat their flesh with it. And they would strike them twice on the back and once on the chest. And they'd do that over and over and over and over again until they'd beat them 39 times. And they considered it a privilege to suffer. You and I are late for an appointment and we get mad. God, you could have opened up a parking space. I'm really suffering today. You and I get news that we weren't expecting the doctor's office and we start shaking our head going, "What, God, why? I've been faithful, God. I've done what I was supposed to do. Why this report? You and I go in the office expecting to get a Christmas bonus and we get laid off. And we get frustrated at God because we've bought into a lie, a formula that's false that says, if I do this, then God will do this and it will equal my happiness and my prosperity. But the scripture says, no, that's not how it works. Jesus said, indeed, you may suffer but it is only for a moment. Because this is the great promise of the gospel. To, to, to say the promise of the gospel is that you'll be healthy and wealthy is a very low opinion of the gospel. Because the gospel says this world and everything in it is fleeting and is for a moment. But there is a world to come that Christ has promised a new heaven and a new earth and there is great prosperity there. Scripture doesn't say that when we get to heaven and we get sick, we'll get better. The Scripture says there's no more sickness there. The Scripture doesn't say when we get to heaven, there's this threat of dying, but God will rescue us from it. It says there's no death there. There's no mourning there. There's no tears there. There is simply everlasting, sinless, joy-filled glory with Christ our King. That is where prosperity lies. And that is what the gospel calls us towards. And the gospel says, yeah, you, you may suffer. I mean, imagine what this was for the disciples to be beaten, to be threatened over and over again. And if you know the story, you know how it ends for these men. There'll eventually be a counsel for each of them that they won't walk out of. They're going to die for their faith. 
They're going to suffer greatly. But oh, will they prosper. And oh, will we. When we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to use us for God's glory. And that's the final thing I want to leave you with this Christmas season. Number three, the call of Christmas. We're called to depend on the power of the Spirit rather than determining to try harder. I've never met a bigger group of try harder people than the church of Jesus Christ. We have this sense about us, this work ethic. That's, that's good. It's good to have a work ethic. But here's where it gets muddy. We come to the gospel with this thought that, well, God's done this, and I'm doing this, and together we make a pretty good team. And the gospel says you can do all that you can do, and you can try to be as good as you can possibly be, and you can seek to follow as best you can the law of God, and you will fail, and so will I. The gospel doesn't say that we come to Christ with a little bit of righteousness and His righteousness makes up for what we lack. The Gospel says there's none good, not even one, and it is only by the complete 100% righteousness of Christ that you and I are saved. And we need to remember that at Christmas as well as every other time of the year. Because if we're not careful, friends, we walk through this life in the flesh and we walk through trying hard. Here in the text... The final thing we see is this Gamaliel, this teacher of the law. We learn later in Acts, he's the one that taught Paul. He's an esteemed teacher. He's a great teacher. And he stands up and he makes a point. And God uses him in this process for the apostles to walk out of their lives. Because he basically says, listen, you remember Thutis? Remember all those people that followed him? He was killed. People dispersed. Judas, people followed him. He died. People dispersed. And he's essentially saying, listen, if this is of man, Jesus is dead They'll disperse. But then he gives this warning. If this is of God, there ain't nothing we're going to do to stop it. And if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves lining up opposite of God. And that's not a place we want to be. And it is a great reminder to us today. That friends, what God has willed, God will do. And what God has empowered will come to fruition. It is not on our backs to go to a lost world stomping and demanding that they say the right things at Christmas time. There's going to be a Christmas time and Christ will always be in it. Why? Because that is of God. That is not of man. Jesus is the reason for the season. It's not a marketing campaign a bunch of people came up with one day. It's something that happened in a stable in Bethlehem. And when Christ was born, He came that we might live. And that is of God, not of man. And nothing will thwart that. And rather than getting so aggregated and frustrated and stomping our feet, as if we've got to protect the gospel and keep it safe, we're called to simply go to the world and share the gospel with them that they might be saved. That's the call on my life. And that's the call on your life. And so I would ask you this week, you will probably be gathering with family, with friends. You're going to see people, just random people you don't even know. And they're going to say something to you, Merry Christmas, whatever it might be. You say something to them, whatever it might be. Take this opportunity, this time of the year, when the name of Jesus is on the pagans' lips. They don't know who He is. They're just singing along with the radio. 
and tell them who he is. Take the opportunity when the world is buying cards with a picture of a baby in a manger on it to tell them who the baby in the manger is. That he grew to be a man and he went to the cross and he died in our place so that we might have life. Take the opportunity this week to give the gift that is one of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Will everyone respond to that in a great way? Maybe not. Will you and I be persecuted when we take a stand for our faith? Perhaps. But it is of God that all men might hear the gospel and he promises in his word as it goes forward, he is the one who will bring fruits. And that's the side that we're called to be on. And I pray that we will. If you would, pray with me to that end. Father God, we do come to you in Jesus' name today and ask, Lord, that you would help us to boldly proclaim the gospel. Lord, I confess in my own heart it is, it is so much easier at times to get angry at our world, to get frustrated with them, to demand things of them, and to lose sight of the reality that so many in our world, they, they don't know Jesus. They don't know Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for every person in this room who does know Jesus. Lord, would you help them? Would you empower them with your spirit? Would you use us this week to share the true meaning of Christmas with someone? Lord, this is always a time of year when, when people are, are looking to help people out. They're looking to meet needs. Lord, would you help us in that process to, to look for those who don't know Christ? And Lord, there's lots of things we could do for those people, but there's only one thing that's going to save them, and that's the gospel. So would you help us to share it with them? And Lord, for any here, perhaps, who's here today, maybe just because it's Christmas, and, and they come around Christmas time to church, maybe they've come to church a long time, but they've, they've, they've never made this decision, they've never responded to the gospel. Lord, in your goodness and your grace and your mercy, would you help them to, to see the gospel today? And to respond in repentance and faith to it. Because your word says, if, if any will confess Christ as Lord and believe in their heart, God raised him from the dead, they'll be saved. Lord, pray that you might save some even now. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.